Yeah, so a long time is a relative uh, sort of phrase, isn't it? Because uh, my family and I were here for four years, right? Four years. And so for some of you, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's just getting warmed up. But maybe others of you are find yourself in that period as well. You know, just not many years ago, well, it would be five years from now, we came to, to Trinity for the first time. We had just moved to Walla Walla. And we, I think it was... Uh, uh, October, actually, a little bit later in the fall. Awana was one of the things that brought us here. And our kids did Awana. Later, I had an opportunity to serve with Awana. During those four years, I just want, want you to, to either remember or I want you to know that there was a major transition in my life in those four years. I had sh- we showed up in Walla Walla. I was a f- school teacher. I was a high school teacher. And I was unsettled. I was an unsettled high school teacher. And uh, so uh, this church, not only did you welcome us as a family, but Pastor Brad especially, and, and Chris was the first one I met on a Wednesday night, uh, accepted us and really became partners in our spiritual journey. And so I went in those four years from a school, full-time teacher to a full-time teacher and a part-time seminary student to then a part-time teacher and a full-time seminary student to now we are living in Pullman. I graduated with an MDiv just a year ago. We uh, accepted an associate pastor position in last August and moved there just uh, August 23rd, I think it was. So it was very rapid and a real, really significant period in my family's life. We have five kids, and they had really gotten to become accustomed to the youth ministry here, which is, was fabulous, D- making friends. And so we were actually quite happy living in Walla Walla. And so it was a challenge for us to move uh, away. And so here we are. I'm, I'm, I was thankful to hear from Chris and give me a chance to come and, and speak to with you. And to take an opportunity to just help you remember how important that was to us. Now, I know you guys are in a series in Acts called Wildfire, and I was looking at where I was going to land in the sequence of things, and I'm, I was comparing that to where we are in Pullman and in the series we're in there, and I called Chris and I said, hey, would you mind if I stepped out of the book of Acts and came from the Gospel of Luke because I, I see something there that I really think God would like us to hear. And so he said, okay, and, and there are a couple of natural uh, similarities between Luke and Acts. One, of course, is the author, the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote Acts. His name is Luke. But last week, I know that you had learned at least a situation that revolved around some widows and their needs being met. And today, of all things, we're going to take a seat next to the Lord Jesus and we're going to, he's going to make an observation about a widow. Now, that's more a coincidence than anything else. But as we do that, I'm hoping that we can really... Uh, we, we want to take a, an imaginary journey here. Uh, what I'm going to say is going to fall into three sections. One is obviously this piece that comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. 
From there, we're going to see a principle that I think we all, I think God would have us all uh, take away, all right? But then as we wrap up, we're going to see that that principle is really interwoven in the book of Acts in a very real way, and it's good to be reminded of that. So as we get started, I hope we can really begin an imaginary journey. You see, the last week of Jesus' life, he spent in the temple. And he went, day by day, he would spend in the temple teaching, um, whether it was in teaching his disciples, teaching the crowd, or whatever. And I want us to imagine what that might have looked like. Of course, the temple isn't existing today. But the temple was a huge structure, is massive. And the foundation, uh, it does exist today, but the temple itself has been destroyed. And so this scale drawing here, as you see it here, is, is a, a representation of what it might look like. And, and, and the reason I want you to see this today is, is to, first of all, just see the magnitude of it. You can maybe be able to see the little dots of people walking up the, the walkways, up the stairs. You can see the colonnades on the side. Now, this huge courtyard, this massive open square, is called the Court of Gentiles. And so if, 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 if we were going to go to the temple with Jesus, we're going to go up these ramps, go up these stairs, and we're going to walk across this massive court. It's just a huge facility. And there's all kinds of people, right? We're, we're kind of in with the Gentiles, and they might be here and there and wherever. And we're making our way sort of towards the, uh, towards the right, right? And we're going towards what's called the beautiful gate. Now, as we come to the beautiful gate, you can see the pillars that are, uh, there's what, five pillars. This huge, ornate entryway, which leads into another large open square. Now, the, the scale of this, if you could just imagine it, imagine two football fields wide. That's about how, how wide the temple is, about two football fields. And it's almost a football field and a half long. It's just huge. Maybe some of you have been to a football stadium. And maybe some of you actually had a chance to be down on the field. And that's pretty big. But this is almost double. And as we come into this open square, along the sides are some shaded regions where people would gather and sit and talk and teach and listen and all these kinds of things. But within the square were also these 13 containers, 13 containers known as the treasury. That's where the offerings were brought, the financial offerings. And uh, Jesus, on this particular day, is sitting opposite the treasury. Now, in addition to this, we're in the busiest time of year. So we can imagine we're with Jesus, we're huddled among his disciples, a few followers, and there's a lot of people coming and going. I mean, this is the busiest week of the year leading up to a festival called Passover. And um, as we sit with Jesus, we are, we're, we're watching what he's looking at, right? We're, we're listening to what he's saying. Because so often he would just say, he would make an observation, wouldn't he? 
And he, and he would say something quite profound. And so we're, we're ready for this. And uh, like any, of course, good disciple, we're, we're just watching him. And he'd look one way, we might look there. He might look another way and we're, and we're, and we're just sort of milling around. And this is where we meet Jesus in Luke chapter 21, which I'd like to read for us now. It's just a couple of verses, four verses. It says this, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Again, I hope we can just picture this. We, we're sitting with Jesus. He, maybe he has his head uh, down because here Luke says he looked up. There's possibly hundreds of people milling around and, and he makes an observation. He says... See that, you see that widow right there? She just put in more than everybody else. You know, the, these other people are, are putting in out of their abundance. But, but she just put in everything she has. She's, she's put in more. And that's it. He, he didn't prom- pronounce a woe on the rich. Look at those rich. No. He, he just makes an observation. He, he doesn't say, man, that, what a blessed widow. He, he just says, she, she put in more. And that's it. J- just an observation. <clears throat> now, if we could literally see what the widow put in, we would see that she did put in two small coins. Some some of our English versions say a pennies or something like that. But these were two of the smallest Roman coins available called a lepton. A lepton. She put in two lepton, which make a lepta, right? Plural. Okay? And, and basically the idea is that these were worth a fraction of a day's wage. Okay? A fraction. Uh, in fact, it's somewhere between one sixty-fourth and one one-hundredth of a day's wage. Now, I looked at the median day's wage of, of you all in Walla Walla, right? So, so half of you make less than this. That's the median. And half of you make more. And that, that median is $115 a day. $115 a day. That's a day's wage. So, one sixty-fourth of $115 to uh, one and one hundredth, right? It's a range. is about $1.15 to $1.84. I did the math, okay? I was a math teacher after all. So, so, so let, let's be generous. We'll round up to $2, okay? So, so, so in today's terms, by today's standards, she has $2. And she's putting in $2 in the offering. Imagine she's putting $2 in the offering plate, Okay? doesn't seem like very much. But the thing is, as Jesus pointed out, she's poor. And she, had, she literally had $2 to her name. 
I don't know about you, but I've never been that poor. I mean, some of you may have. Some of you may have said, man, this, like, this is it. We, we don't have anything left. And she puts that into the treasury. And she's contrasted with the rich. Right? The rich were putting in their gifts. Now, <clears throat> Luke doesn't say this, but another writer, the gospel writer named Mark, Mark records this same story. And he says this. He says, many rich people were putting in large sums. So let's just picture many rich people putting in large sums. Now, the idea here, obviously being rich, we sometimes can have a notion of what that looks like or not. But basically, if, if, if you have anything left over after your expenses have been met, then you're rich, right? And, and so it doesn't really hurt to give an offering, does it really? I mean, everything else has been paid for, you've got some left over. Uh, that's kind of the idea here, okay? Now, um, in being poor, I want to point out one other thing. Luke says that, that in verse 2 that he saw a poor widow. And the word here in the Greek is called penachron. She's a penachron widow, poor widow. And, and, and that's like a, a poor and needy, right? But, but not, not, you would say, a beggar, right? There, there's a lower word for that. So, so, so she's a penachron widow, a poor widow. She only has $2 to her name. Not very much, but she has something. And that something becomes nothing because she gave it away. And, uh, and so as we think of this, as we, as we see this event unfold in our minds, I wonder how does that make you feel? You see, I think that there's part of us that might, might be inspired by what just happened. Wow, what... A, what sacrificial giving, right? What faith this widow has to give her last $2 away to the temple. Wow, I mean, that's pretty impressive. There's another part that, of you that might say, you know, it just doesn't add up. I mean, come on. I mean, if she really had $2, does God really want her to give it away and then leave with nothing? I mean, is that the standard that, that we're talking about here? There, there's something that's missing. And if she inspires us, right, if she inspires us, we've got to ask ourselves, how much money do I have? And if she's inspiring me to, to, to give away everything, which is exactly what she did, am I willing to do that? Well, but before we answer that question, I, I want us to see something I believe that's easy to miss, okay? I think we can readily recognize who this widow is uh, sort of on the surface, right? She's poor and she's a widow, okay? But I think Jesus saw something that we don't see. Uh, and that is, is that she, I believe in this widow, is she is a, a woman who has been reduced to the lowest state of poverty because of extreme spiritual negligence. She was experiencing spiritual abuse. Do you know what I'm talking about? A, a, a religious system that didn't really care about its people. Rather, it's a system that, that put burden upon burden upon burden. 
without any kindness, any grace, any love. She had been reduced to poverty as a result of negligence. You see, you don't have to read very far, really in any part of the Bible, to know that God cares about poor people, orphans, and widows. It's, it's, it's all throughout. And for this widow to come along and not be cared for demonstrates how far the, the community had fallen. The religious leaders, her own family, had failed her. They had failed in what was supposed to be woven into the Jewish cultural fabric. Now, I was looking at this, I came across an article by a professor named Richard Patterson, and he says this. He says, in turning to the Old Testament, one finds the orphan-widow-poor motif is utilized and indeed is so often mentioned, now hang on, that the conduct deemed meritorious because it was the particular prerogative of the ideal good shepherd type of king became the prescribed way of life in the Israelite social structure. Okay, we've got to take this in, so let's unpack it. Okay, the last phrase is the point. It became the prescribed way of life in the Israelite social structure. Okay, why? Because it was meritorious, right? The, 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 the motif of caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan, it was, meritor- it was a good thing. Why? Well, that's the middle part. Because it was the particular prerogative of the ideal good shepherd type of king. Isn't that what a good shepherd type of king would do? Is provide for widows? Care for orphans? And the answer is, of course. And so the care for the widow was commanded because it represented the heart of God. The expression of a good shepherd king caring for and providing for his people. And so if we read, if, for example, in, in uh, the, the Apostle Paul, he says a family that doesn't care for its widow, guess what? They're acting worse than an unbeliever. That's what he says. It was supposed to be, it was a prescribed way of life in the Israelite social structure and they had failed. And that's what I think Jesus saw. I think he saw a spiritually abused and neglected woman. A widow who was rendered poor and destitute by a family and spiritual advisors that had failed her. And it actually gets worse. If, if we could read Greek, and I'm not saying I can read Greek, but I, I can notice things, okay? In verse 2, I said that this widow came in as a penacron widow, a poor widow. She gives the $2, and then Jesus says in verse 3, this poor widow, guess what? Not the same word. 
The word there is a patoke widow. She went from penacron to patoke. Poor to destitute. Poor with limited means to destitute and needing to beg. And that's why Jesus said she gave everything. She gave her whole life away. I think it was that serious. And so she had put in more than everyone else. And I think it's helpful to see these two sides of the scene. One, a very solemn expression of the failures of a dead religion. A widow who had been reduced to poverty out of negligence. But in Jesus Christ, we see a God who sees. And a God who knows. And a God who's able to evaluate her actions based on the facts. And so that's why less is more. You may have noticed that the title of today's sermon is When Less is Truly More. And Jesus says, this poor, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than everyone. And so the way I, I, I thought of summarizing this is this way. Less was truly more because little was truly everything. Isn't that what we see here? Less was truly more. Why? Because little was truly everything. And so I wonder, what does this mean to us, right? I, 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 I sort of hope we can resist the temptation to see in the widow an example of sacrificial giving. Indeed, that's what it was, but I don't know if that was the primary point. That would mean we would have to, we would have to give every penny away. And I, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do that. Okay, I don't think you're going to do that. What we do see is a God who knows every detail of our life and our actions matter. Our actions matter. The things that seem little on the surface may be very big in God's eyes. Only He can know the proportion of what's given. And so... And so he, he's able to weigh, right, every detail of our life, every limitation of our life. He knows the money we have. He knows the relationships we have, the physical limitations, the mental limitations. He knows our strengths, our abilities. He knows our disabilities. He knows everything. And he's able to judge perfectly. And so the things that might appear on the surface to be very little, a $2 offering, a cup of cold water, Time visiting a friend or time uh, helping somebody in need. I, um, I'm 
resisting the urge to thank Tom Porter for helping me move a year ago. Thank you very much. A few minutes, an hour. What a help that was. God knows these things. He knows what we're capable of. And they can be very big. You know, there was, I was taking a class and uh, uh, heard a friend in seminary say, uh, describing a, a situation in which she was taking a class and she had to meet somebody of another culture and develop this friendship, right, and, and try to foster this cross-cultural uh, relationship, right? And so, and so in, in true American fashion, right, it, my, the American student was trying to schedule, you know, when are we going to get here, there, will this work, no, this work, okay, no, busy here, yada. And, and they were having a hard time get together, getting together. Well, the truth is, both, both of these ladies were students, both were in seminary, both were taking classes, both had homework, and yet, after a few weeks of, of this frustrating attempt to get together, the, the African friend says to the American, you Americans, you don't have time to be Christians, right? It's like, oh... You know, and I heard that, and I was like, man, <laughs> I, that, that just spoke to me personally. I, but there's something, why do I say this? Well, look, most of us are, in, in, in biblical terms, financially rich. But, but I, I, I think most, many of us are relationally poor, right? Do we have time to be Christians? And I don't mean to our families or friends because, you know, the thing is we tend to, uh, we tend to have uh, limited relationships outside of our immediate family or our close peer group. And we, we, we have limited relationships to those in our community and our neighbor and, and those who are farther away from God. As followers of, of Jesus Christ, you know, we need to evaluate how we invest the resources God has given. And, and God won't be fooled, right? He knows exactly what we have. He knows whether it's finances or physical abilities or whatever else, right? We might be in for some big surprises when we stand before God and we give an account. And... And as we make this evaluation, I, I, I would like to point out a principle that I think we can take away here. Now, to be fair, the, the context of this, this event, the widow's gift, was, is a financial giving, obviously. And you see giving is an issue that shows up in the New Testament and elsewhere in the Scripture. But I think there's even something beneath that surface. And it shows up in something that the Apostle Paul wrote. Okay, so if you can bear with me, I'm going to kind of turn a corner for a minute. And we're going to go into something, a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians called the Corinthians. Now, he's writing to them about another group of Christians from Macedonia, okay? Now, you, so I told you to hang with me, so, so it'll, be worth, it'll be worth it here, okay? He's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I kind of see a resemblance to the widow here. 
poverty, extreme poverty, wealth of generosity, verse 3, for they gave according to their means, and I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay, so we have this poor group of Christians and they want to give money beyond their means to support even worse off churches in Jerusalem. But what's underneath all that? Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's the principle. They gave themselves first to the Lord. I think that's what's underlying what I'm seeing and hearing from Jesus in this story. Giving themselves first to the Lord. You know, the scene in the temple, it was never about the activity. It, 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 was, it, it wasn't about offering large sums of money. It wasn't about doing the elaborate things that make us look good right in front of other people and that kind of thing. The temple system really was about one thing. People meeting with God. People coming to meet with God. God wants a relationship and both then and now, right, we can easily confuse uh, uh, the building and the activities and the, and the behaviors that might be expected uh, with what God really wants. And that's a relationship. A personal, living relationship by faith. And even the activities of, of religious life can, can cloud that that God wants to relate to us personally. The first and foremost calling we each have is to give ourselves to God and then to His work. And so I, I was thinking about summarizing this. I know it sounds trite. I, I realize this happens once in a while, but I really believe that less is truly more because relationship precedes responsibility. Ultimately, God wants a relationship. Why? Because a relationship with the living God, as we're going to see in Acts as it plays out, is the fountain from which everything else comes. It all starts here with a relationship, a personal relationship with the living God. Less is more because relationship precedes responsibility. And I know, from, I know I'm, I easily reverse this order, right? I, I'm, I'm quicker often to do than to be. <laughs> but God is asking us to be in relationship with him. Now, imagine how the widow would have been cared for if relationship with the, the living God had preceded uh, uh, the responsibilities of the temple system, right? The religious uh, rulers would have been diligent to ensure that she's being cared for. You saw that last week in Acts chapter 6. Her own family would have been diligent to make sure her needs were met. 
If they had any heart for God, they would have had a heart for that widow. And so Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, to us. Now, that's where we come into the book of Acts. And I believe that's exactly what you see is people responding to the gospel message and they're giving themselves to the, to the Lord. You saw that summary in chapter 2 towards the end there and, 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 he, and he describes how the people received the word and they were baptized and they were added to the church. Right? Baptism was, was drawing a line in the sand and they're saying, I belong to Jesus and I'm going to follow him the rest of my life. I'm going to join the believing community. And that's exactly what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. They were devoted. They were daily in the temple and where else? In each other's homes. They were generous with their time, with their homes, with their personal space. But yes, they were also generous with their possessions. And we find that they're actually selling off things that they don't need in order to contribute to the poor. Amazing. But where did it all start? It started when they gave themselves to the Lord, when they, when they responded to this relationship with the living God. But the thing is, it is supernatural. We, we can't fake it. And as we see these things and we consider what it means for us today, we need to realize that this is a life that the Holy Spirit wants to live through each one of us. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we see that we can actually resist the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? We can resist the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so in doing these things, we can very easily deceive ourselves in thinking that we're actually being part of what God wants. Now, I was scheduled, I was considering uh, preaching from chapter 7. And that's exactly the way that chapter ends when, when Stephen tells the religious uh, leaders of that day. He says, you guys always resist the Spirit. I was like, Wow. And so, we, and so I think the call here is just to be honest, really just to be honest, to um, give ourselves to the Lord. And as I mentioned before, that temple we looked at, you know, it was destroyed. It was later destroyed because an entire system had deceived itself. And we see that God, in, through the book of Acts and now through the church as we've come to know it, God is working. God is continuing His work. And so there's a couple of suggestions that I would like to leave with us this morning. One is that we give, well, give yourself to the Lord. Now, what does that look like? You think, might think, Josh, you don't... Sounds good, but what do I do about that? Well, one way is that you pray uh, what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, uh, pray, our Father in heaven, 
Hallowed be your name. That just means uh, be holy, be, be great. Okay? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So my encouragement to you is you make that your personal prayer every day for the rest of the month. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, you rule over my life. You rule over my life. You rule over my life. I give my life to you. And then secondly, of course, we then, we, what do we do? We live in response to him. Right? That's what we do. We live in response to that. Now, the, the Jesus was very clear that true love for him uh, comes down to obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so that is what God is asking us. And, and the first commandment, of course, God wants us to love him. And, if, and so it starts with a relationship with him. God wants our heart. But then as we commit our hearts and minds to him, he's going to start asking things of us. And that's where it becomes more individual. And so not only can we do this as a church, but we do this as individuals. We live uh, in response to him. And that's really all I have for you this morning. And uh, if... If you think about these things, I, I hope that God is speaking. I hope God is speaking to each one of us to live each day giving ourselves to Him and living in response to what He would have us do. So, shall we pray? Father, we thank You now for this word we are we are very humbled when we see Jesus point out this widow and we hear him say she gave in more than everybody else we're so used to being in abundance that's just part of our culture would you point out our deficiencies father would you show us the ways in which we need to give ourselves to you and then help us to live in response to that Help us to do that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.